morning, church. Good to see you. Let's uh, grab our Bibles. And um, I'll say this, we're getting back to a series that we started back in the fall, uh, and uh, we have set up some extra resources for this. It's a, a doctrinal series, a little dip, bit different than what we have uh, normally done here with a passage and kind of working through it. And so it's um, it's been a heavier kind of like focusing on uh, doctrinal matters. And today, I'm just going to warn you up front, like it's... Uh, yeah, it's thick today. It's going to be thick. So, um, but uh, there are extra resources. If you're like hearing this and going, I love this. I want more of this at our resource center in the West lobby. There are some books that we have put there, some resources that can help you dive deeper into any of these doctrinal uh, teachings that we're having. And then if you go on our website, harvestberry.ca slash here I stand, that's the title of the series. Uh, there are a number of articles and uh, books there that are listed for you to go deeper into all of these, and they're all categorized according to the different uh, topics and messages that we have been uh, looking at. All right, ready to get in God's Word? Yeah. All right, here we go. A, a, a church member uh, once asked Reformer Martin Luther, I know you know that name, uh, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? And uh, he responded by saying, because week after week you forget it. And uh, I think that what was true for Martin Luther's congregation would be true for us as well. We can't, I would just say it this way, we can't talk enough about the gospel. We just can't. And, and we can't spend enough time making sure we get the gospel right. Because we know that in as much as there is a true gospel, and we're going to look at that today, there are false gospels, there are aberrations of the gospel, and, and even those of us who would embrace the true gospel... From time to time, it's just so easy for us to drift away from it and to believe some false things. And that's why we need this constant reminder and being brought back because week after week, we forget it. And too much is on the line to forget the gospel in any respect. And so we are getting back to this series. The series is called Here I Stand. Uh, it commemorates the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation being launched. How many people love history? Okay, this is for the six of you. <laughs> but this sixth message, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's not just about history, you'll see in a moment, but in this sixth message in the series, we're going to be looking at the matter of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And at the core of the Reformation was the question, how is a person saved? And uh, this is a uh, a picture of the church in Wittenberg where Martin Luther was staying and he, he took the 95 theses or the arguments that he was making, these statements challenging the teaching of the existing church and pinned it to the door of the church in Wittenberg and opened up this discussion. And when you look at the 95 statements, a vast majority of them deal with this issue of how is a person saved? Because the established church had been trampling for centuries over that very critical teaching. And as the Reformation progressed, five tenets of the Reformation began to emerge. And three of those are so critical for this matter of salvation. I'll put them up on the screen. They're all in, in Latin. I'll give you the translation. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone and solus Christus, Christ alone. All dealing with the matter of salvation because the waters of salvation had become so muddied on all three of these points. Now again, this is not just a history lesson, nor, listen, is it just a theology lesson. 
We can't afford just to fill our minds with right doctrine. We need to know how this impacts us today. Though the question of how a person is saved is no less important to us. Every person in this room and everyone we come into contact with needs to know the right path to God. How does a person get into a relationship with God? And at stake is this place called heaven, this eternal state where everything is perfect and we're at rest and at peace. I mean, I want that now in my life. When you think about the people in your life who don't have Jesus, people who have even the most casual belief in God, and, and the fact is around you, the people you work with, people in your family and neighborhood, the vast majority of people in Canada believe in God. Atheists are a micro-minority, people who deny any existence of God, a micro-minority. Most of the people in your life believe in God, and most of those people also believe in an afterlife, and they believe that that afterlife is better than this life. And they're looking forward to it. But on the basis of what? They think everybody eventually is going to the better place and no one wants to think about the other place. But they only believe that on the basis of their own opinion or their speculations or it's wishful thinking. They're certainly not basing it on what God tells us in his word about how you get there, how you book your spot, how you're guaranteed to be with him for eternity. In fact, if you look at what the Lord says, salvation is for you only if, Romans 10, 9, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you confess and believe, you'll be saved. Apart from confession and belief, listen now, apart from confession and belief, there can be no claim to be saved by anyone. And so that's where we're going today, seeking to answer this all-important question. And in each of these messages, we're laying down the faith statement, and then we look at the scriptures to see why we believe that. But uh, what I believe, salvation is deliverance from sin and death by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the statement we're going to go after. Let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll uh, begin looking at the scriptures. Uh, Father, uh, we are uh, privileged to again be in your presence and privileged to be with your people and privileged to have your word open in front of us. Uh, God, we pray that you would bless uh, this time again, send your Holy Spirit to speak to us and Father, to do that incredible thing that you do, that you'll meet every single one of us right where we are so we'll hear a message that impacts our very lives. So speak to every individual in this uh, room right now, everyone who's listening to this message, and change us, transform us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You agree with that prayer? Amen. All right. What I believe, salvation is deliverance from sin and death by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now let's lay down why we believe that. And we're going to look at salvation in terms of the threefold process, uh, the three elements or aspects of salvation uh, that we see in the scriptures. Here come the $1,000 theological words that you're going to want to write down. Uh, justification, 
sanctification, glorification. I think we might even have given you those right in your notes. Am I right? Or right there in your notes. So we're going to look at these three words that all relate to our salvation. And they can be illustrated this way. In fact, I'm going to give you a little graph here that's going to help us. Uh, where we live from the time we're born until the time that you might make a decision to become a follower of Christ, we live uh, dead in sin in this grayed out area down at the bottom of the graph. That's where you are before you're a believer. And we're going to talk in a moment about justification. You can see the progressive, uh, progressive growth of sanctification and the point of death is glorification. We're going to look at all of that um, as we go along here. But uh, first of all, let's start with this matter of a justification, and in your notes, you can note beside the word justification, this is the number one watershed issue. Uh, this was the flashpoint issue of the Reformation. This is the most important word in terms of our understanding of how we come into a relationship with Christ. If you want the two-word definition of justification, this is it. It is to be declared righteous. That's the definition, to be declared righteous righteous by God on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, we've said that with that definition behind us, and we've said that this is the most important issue, but how important really was it? Martin Luther himself said this, if we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose simply everything. In other words, without the doctrine of justification, there is no basis whatsoever for what we're doing. There's no basis for the songs that we sang in worship. There's no basis for the preaching of God's word. There's no basis for the offerings that we gave. There's no basis for the serving that we're doing of one another. There's no basis for this building. There's no basis for this gathering. Without a proper understanding of the doctrine of justification, we should shut off the lights and empty the building and sell the property and all just go on with our lives. Without a right understanding of justification, we lose everything. And so it's so important we lock this down. Uh, Wayne Grudem, theologian, said this, a true view of justification is the dividing line between the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone, sola fide, and all false gospels of salvation based on, now this is so important, good works. It's the dividing line. And we're gonna look a lot at this whole idea of what it means to be saved by faith alone versus what it means some people understand to be uh, salvation by works. And Romans 8.30, it's a key verse, and we'll uh, get started with this. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul writes, those whom he predestined, speaking of God, those whom he predestined, that is God elects us, God chooses us to be saved, that's a sticking point for some people. We'll come back to it in a moment. Those whom he predestined, listen to the, how definite this is, okay? Those whom he predestined, he also called. So he's, he's chosen us to salvation, and then for each of us, a call comes into our life to be saved, and that call is on the basis of irresistible grace. In other words, there's no possible way, if the call of God comes into our life, anyone can possibly refuse the call of God. You can't. 
That's why I'm kind of relaxed when it comes to preaching the gospel and we, we don't give these tearful appeals to come up to the front and be saved because I am perfectly confident that at the preaching of the gospel and the kind of invitations we do, you should come to faith in Christ that if the call of God is on your life, you're not gonna be able to say no to that. No one needs to be coerced into the kingdom of God. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Notice how the verse continues now. And those whom he called, he also, what's the word? Justified. That's what we're looking at. I mean, this is happening. If he picks you, he's calling you. If he calls you, he's saving you. It's going to happen. And those um, who he whom he justified, he also glorified. We'll come back to that a little bit later. And so this understanding of justification, we're trying to pin down now. Justification is this. My sins are now forgiven. The righteousness of God, of Christ, is put on to me. And on the basis of those two things, God looks at me and declares me to be righteous in his sight. In other words, in God's eyes, write this down, I'm good. In God's eyes, I'm good, like literally good. Now, this is great news because you might have people in your life who don't think you're good. Do you have anybody in your life like that? People who like to point the finger at how sinful you are and how many things you do wrong and they're constantly berating you and putting you down. People who think your Christian life isn't a good enough Christian life, constantly judging you and oppressing you. Constantly reminding you that you're not measuring up in some way. I mean, I need less of those people in my life. But we all have people like that in our life. And, 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 and questioning whether or not you're actually saved. And the reality is that the only one who matters in this, I don't mean to offend anybody. Or actually, I probably do mean to offend some people. The only one who matters is God. Amen. How does God see you if you're actually predestined and you are actually called and you are actually saved by him, justified by him, then it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks. Stop being oppressed by that. And then, let's add to that, sometimes it isn't other people that are our worst enemy, but it's ourselves. And we can't get over past sin and, and we don't believe that God has forgiven us and, and, and we can't get to a good place. When I, and you don't know the things that I've done. And we're, we're self-incriminating constantly and enslaving ourselves to something that God does not enslave us to. God has declared us righteous. Why can't I declare myself to be righteous on the basis of what Christ has done? You see, with God... I'm good, and I need to rest in that. So now listen, back to our graphic, that all happens. That all happens like instantly, notice, at the point of conversion, at that very moment when I'm converted and make my decision to follow him, I am justified. Romans 10, uh, 13, right after we're told, confess and believe, Paul sums it up by saying this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this raises a very, very critical point about our salvation pertaining to this matter of predestination and God choosing us. We're living down here 
from our perspective, we need to talk about the things that we need to do in order to enter into this faith relationship with Christ. Quite apart from the sovereign election of God, there must be a decision made by you and me to receive this gospel. So some people are on this program where they're like, I don't, I don't completely understand why God would elect some and not others. Why would God choose some and not others? What is this whole issue of, of predestination and why does it God, God do it that way? And that doesn't seem fair to me. And I, I will freely admit that I do not understand the doctrine of predestination and why God chooses and how he arrives at those choices. I do not understand it. That is rooted in the mind of God. It is a divine perspective that I do not have because I'm living down here. But I accept it because the scriptures are very clear on it and teach it. On the other hand, over on this side, we have the whole concept of the free will of man. And, and I actually choose Christ and, and I considered the gospel and I made my decision. And when I look at the scriptures, here's the crazy thing. The scriptures teach this and the scriptures teach this. And so we ask the question, did God choose or did I decide? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. So I can't fully reconcile the two of those things together, but I don't have to. I believe them and I trust them by faith that it's true. And I understand that I don't have the divine perspective. What I have is the human perspective. I'm down here and all I know is I don't actually know who's saved. So I got to preach the gospel and I got to say to you, you need to choose Christ because whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what I know. That's how we're justified. It's actually the initial exercising of faith. And Romans 5.1 takes us there. Therefore, notice, since we have been justified by faith, sola fide, faith alone justifies us. And therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the relationship between us and God is now reconciled. There's peace between us. That's the thing we're going after. And so here it comes at you like a fire hose. In that moment of faith and of conversion, we are justified, declared to be righteous, and then adopted into his family, Romans 8, 15, and regenerated or made new or reborn. Okay, that's crossing that line from dead in sin now. I'm starting the Christian life. Titus 3, 5 says he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. No amount of offerings, no amount of serving, no amount of religious observance, no amount of morally upstanding living is sufficient to earn salvation. It's not according to works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so our good works cannot save us and are not saving us. It is sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, undeserved and unearned favor of God that saves us. And what's more, when we think about our perspective, John Newton said this, he's the author of Amazing Grace. If believing and repenting are proper condition of my salvation, that seems like my part of it. 
He said, I can no more fulfill them than I can touch the stars. And what he means to say by that is that even conversion, which we see from our perspective as an act of our own will, that's the way we see it. Even that is God working in us to draw us to himself. What saves us is what Jesus did 100% with 0% of it being us. What saves us is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The atonement is the covering of our sin to forgive our sin. And the substitution is Jesus giving his life in place of us. He took my penalty. He paid the price for my sin. He substituted himself for me and for you. 1 John 2, 2. He paid the price and he saved us from the wrath of God, the judgment of God, Romans 5, 9. And that um, in the fewest words possible, knowing that volumes and volumes and volumes have been written on the matter of justification, that in the fewest words possible is what we understand to be true from the scriptures about justification. Now let's look at sanctification, the next phase in this. Back to our graphic. This is where uh, we live right now. We were dead in sin. At the point of conversion, we now enter into this second main section we call the Christian life. And we are in now this uh, process of progressive growth, becoming more and more like Jesus until the point at which we uh, die physically and pass from this life into eternity. So this is where we live right now. Uh, the word uh, sanctify means to uh, be set apart, to be made holy or to be making holy. And again, you can see how it takes us from the point of conversion to the point of death. Romans six nineteen, Paul says this, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that part of the verse right there, that describes everything below the line of conversion. When I was dead in my sin, that's the way I was living. I was giving my body over to impurity and to lawlessness, and that was sin compounding in my life. That's where I was, and that is the pre-justification state of every single human being dead in sin. But then Paul goes on to say, so now, that was true, so now that you've been converted, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to, what's the word? What's the word? Sanctification. That's exactly what we're going after here. This process of being set apart or being made holy. Now, that word to present our members, the verb present is, is a, an imperative. And it's, it's calling us into this state of continuous being. It's a command to us that we need to be constantly, regularly, the pattern of our life is setting our lives apart for Christ. And that's the state of our being going forward. Now, notice on our graphic that this line is a jagged line. 
that it involves some ups and downs, some back and forth, that it's, it's a bit, the Christian life's a bit of a slog, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if there's anybody in the room here who, you know, the moment I was saved, it was just smooth sailing all the way. Anybody on that path? Because if you know that path, everyone else in the room wants to know where it is. Because our lives are more like the up and down and the hard thing. And, and you wonder, what's it like in all of those, those pits and those downfalls? Tyler, who makes the uh, graphics for us, he suggested these ones. <laughs> My Christian life isn't going so well when I'm southbound on the 400 on a Sunday. It's a bad idea. Or any trip to Costco. Or any time I have to deal with tech support. Or a phone call to Bell or Rogers to work something out with your cell phone. I mean, I finished talking to Rogers, and I'm pretty sure I'm not even saved anymore. You know what I'm saying? I know you have the same experience. And so, but, but listen, that's kind of a, I think really these kinds of little things that happen in our life, for sure they can test our patience and such, but I think these are just more like little potholes or little pockmarks along the way. And what we're really talking about when we hit these dips and valleys are really more serious items like I'm allowing sin to dwell in my life a little more than I should. And I'm not really concerned with getting rid of it. And so my sanctification begins to trail off a little bit. Or, or it's, I'm, I'm going through a trial, and in the midst of the trial, I'm not taking it very well. Rather than doubling down on prayer and seeking the Lord and, and, and feeling comforted and cared by Him, I'm shaking my fist at Him, and why have you let this happen to me, and I don't deserve this. And you distance yourself from the very one who can carry you through it. Or, or... Sometimes these downward times are related to prosperity and blessing and everything's going right in my life right now. And I just don't need God as much. I just love money in a bank and the kids are good and marriage is great and job is good and everyone's healthy and I'm feeling like I just don't even really need to spend time with the Lord. And What's interesting is that even if in all of those times, if we're truly justified by Christ and declared to be righteous and we are progressing, that even in those times, the Holy Spirit, even when we're entertaining sin more than we should, and even when we're in the midst of deep trials, and even when times are good and we're forgetting the Lord, the Lord is still pulling us upward and upward and upward, and there's still progress being made. Ultimately, we'll come to ourselves and we'll repent and we'll get back with the Lord. And he'll bless us and continue his work of sanctifying us along the way so that we're in a greater and greater way over the course of a lifetime displaying the righteousness of God in our walk with Christ. I think the best description for this line, in fact, is Philippians 2.12, where we're told, Paul writes this line, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And by salvation there, he's talking about this middle part. You see, you don't have to work out the justification because God worked that out. It's entirely his thing. And, and you don't have to work out the glorification part because God's going to work that out too. But the middle part, okay, work that out. Work that out, the sanctification. Work that out with fear and trembling before the Lord and seek to be more like him. 
And to put the whole thing in perspective with justification, the preacher in Hebrews does a great job for us just by using different verb tenses. If you don't like history, for sure you like grammar. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 10 and 14, these two verses, he says this, we have been, past tense, we have been sanctified. Now listen, what he's talking about there is really justification. We have been sanctified. We've been declared to be righteous. We are believers. Notice, through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who, I get so geeked about verb tenses, those who are being justified or sanctified. The, the progressive part of this, ongoing, continuous action, not ending until the day that I actually enter into his a presence, have been completed, justified, are being, ongoing, being sanctified. All right, that's the first two, justification, sanctification. How many people they think they need a coffee right now? We just need to take a break and come back and do the rest, right? But we can't. So we're going to keep going. Glorification's our last one, this last aspect of salvation. And... Um, so you notice that now when we pass from this life, from the Christian life, our, where physical bodies die, at the point of death, we are glorified now in Christ Jesus. Our bodies are transformed or translated into uh, this uh, perfect eternal body. And, and our salvation then in that moment is fully realized in every way. And so we have this declaration of righteousness. We have this grueling process of seeking to live it out and be holy, become more righteous in reality. And all of that, those two things now give way to, this is awesome, the complete eradication of sin and temptation in our life. And the complete reversing of the effects of death in our lives. Now that's an awesome place and I know we all want to get there to get our glorified, perfect, eternal bodies, okay? The older I get and the more this one breaks down, the more I think about the glorified body, right? I want to get to that place and experience all that God has for me. So back to Romans 8.30, this is where we saw that. Those whom he justified when he declares you to be righteous and starts this process, he's going to finish it. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's going to happen. In fact, it's stated like in the past tense there as if it's already an accomplished fact because it is. It's guaranteed for those of us who are true believers. The day's going to come and so we need to hang on to this. We need to thank God for what's coming. Revelation 21.4. Maybe this is the thing you need to hear today. With whatever you've carried in here, this is what you need to hear. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen. Isn't that awesome? And that's all gonna happen. 1 Corinthians 15, 52. It's all gonna happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, imperishable. 
no corruption, no death, no sin to affect us, imperishable. And we shall be changed. That's glorification, receiving that imperishable body. Who's up for that? Who wants that? Who wants that right now? Sign me up and take me there. All right, state it another way. Let's, so we've wrapped up the three of them. I just really want to make sure you've got this. So um, here's a little chart that might be helpful. We've talked about justification, sanctification, glorification. Uh, one, uh, justification is immediate. Sanctification is ongoing. And glorification is ultimate. You can think of it that way. Or you can think of it this way. Justification is positional. Sanctification is, is uh, progressive. And glorification is realized in eternity, in the future. Or you could say it this way, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And all of those give us the full picture of what God is doing in salvation. Now, I'm hoping, having to spend all that time on this, that I've made that super clear. So if you feel like you've got it, just go ahead and say, got it. Because if you don't got it, I'm going to go right back to the beginning and go all over it again. So how many people have got it? Got it. See, it was much louder the second time. It was much louder. All right. As I said off the top, theology must meet praxis or else it's useless. If we don't find applications now, how this is actually going to change our lives, then it's just filling our heads and that's not helpful. So we've been asking again in this series, every message. Now, how am I living in light of this? So how I'm living because of this doctrine of salvation, first four of these, I'm assured of my position. I'm assured of my position. And I said in the introduction that apart from confession and belief, there can be no claim to be saved. Now I need to add to that, apart from a continued faithful walk with Christ, there can be no assurance that I'm saved. So my works don't save me, but my works are a way of proving that I'm actually saved that there's fruitfulness in my life. And so God wants you to be sure, and he's given us what we need to be sure. Now, we've put all the verses so far up on the screen, but I do I want you to turn in your Bible, so take them right now and turn to Romans chapter 8. And if you read the e-bulletin on Fridays, you know that I encourage you to read Romans 6, 7, and 8. In fact, you could even add chapter 5 to that, but those chapters really give you the meat and a more complete picture of everything that I'm covering here for time. We couldn't look at the whole thing, but Romans 5, 6, 7, 8 are really uh, the place to go for all of this, and it would be great if you could look at those uh, chapters this week. And so in Romans chapter 8, again, we're going after this assurance of salvation, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? And these things that Paul's referring to is everything he's just taught us about salvation in the previous chapters. What shall we say to these things about salvation? And then he asks these rhetorical questions, a whole series of them, with an attempt to get us to be super sure about our salvation. So he says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? No one, no one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Well, of course he's going to do that. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, none of this can separate us from God. And then actually he says that in one word, one emphatic word, the very first word of verse 37, he says it, no, 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 no. In all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, assurance, that's what we're going after. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation comes to us as a result of the love of God and not at all our own works. And that's why we can be confident in it. That's why we can be so sure because it's set by God and it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the security of the, unbelie of the believer then, the security of the believer is undisputed. Assurance is mine because I don't have my own righteousness. I have the imputed or the put on righteousness of Christ in my life. Philippians 3.9 says, this is not a righteousness of my own. I didn't earn my salvation, nor am I maintaining it. Now that said, as confident as that is, and as much as God wants you to have the assurance of that, I will not have an assurance of my salvation if my life does not resemble that of a true believer. The righteousness of Christ in me will be in evidence in my life or I will have no claim to actually be saved. You can't simply say I've been justified by Christ and then go off and live your life any way you want. The holy life, the sanctified life is evidence that something genuine is happening inside of us. In fact, John wrote in his letter uh, to the church, 1 John uh, 5.13 says, um, I've written these things so you may know that you have eternal life. And you go back and look at the letter and it's all about living a pure life and, and dealing with sin in your life and being ruthless about that and, and loving the people that are in your life and so many other kind of indications and, and fruit that we should see in our life that, that are the evidence that we're genuinely saved. Do you have that going on in your life? And are you resting in what uh, God says to us through Paul in Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a good work in you, he who began a good work in you, justified you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will glorify you. And in between those two things, are you persevering in the faith? Are you being sanctified and giving evidence of faith so that you have the assurance that you truly are his? All right, here's a third one, a second one, sorry. I'm also aware of my victory. Now, this flows from the process of sanctification we looked at, and uh, we want to just turn back a page in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, and uh, we'll look at verse 15 and a few other verses here. And I, these, these are the kind of verses that when I look at them, I feel like I could have written them. I feel like these verses are like, this is my testimony. And you see if you would agree with me after I uh, read these, uh, verse 15 of uh, Romans 7, I do not understand my own actions... For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Anybody with me? You're like, yeah, I could have written that. That could be me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. How many people are like, that's my testimony? Are you, is that your testimony? This is where I live. Verse 23, he says, I see in my members, that is in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In other words, my flesh is controlling what I know to be true. I'm thinking about this. I know what God's word says. I know this is a sinful thing that's been put in front of me. But then my flesh overrides what I know to be true and I go ahead and indulge in it. That's what he's saying. Then he kind of throws his hands in the air, verse 24, and says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, the answer, of course, is the very next verse. The solution is Jesus Christ. The rescue comes from him. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then verse, verses one and two of chapter eight. You see, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What Jesus Christ did on the cross, sufficient, paid the price, victory gained. When Jesus said from the cross, it is finished, he wasn't talking just about his work, but he was talking about his work and the application of it into every one of our lives so that every one of us can say, it is finished in my life. I'm not going back to the pattern of sin. I'm going to choose righteousness with my body. Because God's won and the battle is over and the triumph of the cross is mine. Romans 6, 6, I no longer need to remain enslaved to sin. Because of those two amazing words, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't need to wallow in sin. I can experience the victory that Jesus Christ has gained for me. Every single person in this room has the ability to claim the victory of Christ and overcome whatever sin issue you're dealing with right now. There are people in this room who have overcome addictions. There are people in this room who have uh, put aside sexual promiscuity and chosen purity. There are people in this room who used to be liars and now they're truth tellers. There are people in this room who used to be thieves and now they cherish and value the things that God has given on this earth. People who have overcome sin and now live holy lives, who have made better lifestyle choices and who have put away ungodly attitudes and actions, all of it repented, all of it put in their past. And every person in the room who knows Jesus Christ can live in that victory. Third, the greatest evidence of our salvation perhaps is this. I'm attentive to the word of God and you're here today and being attentive to the word and that's awesome. But in essence, this is I'm, I'm saved, I'm justified, I have the Holy Spirit in me and I want, I want to hear everything God has to say. 
I can't get enough of it, and I want my life to be saturated with what the Word of God has to say. I want to hear what God has to say about everything. I want God to inform every single decision. I want God to speak to me about every situation and choice I make. I want to take all the things that I'm hearing in the media and movies and television, books I'm reading and things people are saying, and I want to bring all of that to the Word of God and have the Word of God scrutinize that to tell me if it's true or not. I want to be attentive to the word of God. Jesus prayed this in the upper room in his high priestly prayer for his followers. John 17, 17, he said, sanctify them in truth. Sanctify them. Make them holy in truth. And then he said, your word is truth. We're sanctified to the extent that we get in the word of God and, and, and hear what it has to say. And we're making progress in our salvation because of what we're hearing and it's transforming us. And I would say of this, that a lack of desire for the word of God should be of great concern to anyone who's claiming to be a believer. Finally, this one, anticipating eternity, anticipating that glorified body and anticipating being in the presence of the Lord uh, forever. And I thought it would be fitting for us to just close with this as we think about when, when life is good, am I giving God the glory and am I continuing to make progress in my walk with him? Am I understanding that as good as life can get here, God's preparing something for me that's infinitely more awesome than this? And when I'm in my down times and in the midst of trial and it's really hard, Am I seeing this as my hope? These are verses that are often read at funerals, and I commend them to us for our encouragement that we would be anticipating this eternity. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. Now, he's not talking about people who are sleeping, but people who are dead, believers who are dead already. I don't want you to be uninformed about them that you may not grieve as others who do not have a hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will ever be with the Lord. Amen? And then he closes with this and he says, encourage or comfort one another with these words. Let's encourage and comfort one another with these words. This is our ultimate salvation. This is where we're heading and to confess and believe Jesus Christ, to exercise faith alone, is the means by which we are saved. Here I stand, this is the statement, here I stand on salvation. It is deliverance from sin and death by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we are uh, beyond uh, grateful for the salvation uh, that you have given to us through Jesus Christ. 
Thank you for the promise of what's coming for us and thank you for the assurance that you're going to get us there and strive with us in all of those ups and downs of life. Father, I pray that you would save uh, those in the room who have not yet confessed and believed in you. And God, I would just have it on my heart that this could be their moment. That Father, if indeed you are calling them, that they would respond right now to you. Would confess their sin. Confess their belief in Jesus Christ. Come to that point of conversion and begin their Christian life right now, right in this moment. And God, for all of us, who have already professed faith in you. Send your Holy Spirit to help us in that process of growth, in that sanctification, becoming more and more like you, Father. Do a deep work in all of us today. We believe in your Son. We thank you for his work in our lives. This is all of him. We need him right now. Thank you for hearing this prayer and for doing this work in us and being so patient with us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.